When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We happened upon Michael playing Charles Oakley in table tennis. <laughs> but it was not normal table tennis. This was like, it was trash talking and arguing over points and they are flying around there and I'm like, whoa, (laughs) it was a a hoot. Welcome into the Mighty Oregon Podcast, presented by Oregon Community Credit Union. I'm Rob Mosley. Tinker Hatfield would not be the Nike shoe designer he is today without legendary Oregon track and field coach Bill Bowerman. He gave him a scholarship, he helped him become an architect, and he helped him first get into drawing and designing shoes. What seemed groundbreaking now was something everyone tried to avoid when Tinker was a duck athlete. I remember having a pair that uh, just self-destructed about uh, I was asked to run a 400 meters in it, and I, they self-destructed at about 200 meters, and I, I went tumbling. After a serious ankle injury sidelined Hatfield's on-the-track career, he quickly became one of Bowerman's most trusted testers of his new inventions. I became his favorite test pilot because I could draw, and I would not only give him a report, but I would draw up some suggestions. Architecture degree in hand, Hatfield designed showrooms for Nike until he won a shoe design contest. From there came the Air Max and other shoe designs, and then the opportunity to work with Michael Jordan and the Jordan 3 shoe. Tinker is a mad scientist. He came from Cobalt, and when I played the game, it was about jumping. So, I mean, it was easy to try to find that synergy and a great complement between the two of us. What we did as a team was able to build a product that sustained time. All because he wanted to be an innovator. Soon after, I was doing sneakers and I was getting these stupid briefs that were basically being written by the retailers and they're not, there's not, that's not really a good recipe for doing anything innovative. You mentioned 
wanting to study architecture. So when I, when I asked you earlier about artistic interests earlier, you didn't mention drawing much. <laughs> I know. I so didn't, why was architecture I take, interest? I took I took one art class in high school, and I uh, and I did a couple of paintings. I had no idea how to paint, zero. And so when I went to the University of Oregon, I I was not uh, I was not prepared to be in the architecture department. I didn't have a portfolio. Didn't draw. Didn't was hadn't taken even taken drafting and. I was woefully behind, but it was fortunate for me that I, you know, that I just had this natural talent to be able to draw. I was too busy, too busy being an athlete and a student and yes. staying out of trouble and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I never, it just never popped up until Bill Bauman got me into the architecture program. And uh, all of a sudden, um, that's a big part of in drawing and, and uh, geometry. And it was all part of, part of that education. And I struggled, but I, got, I finally started to get the hang of it. In high school, I won some state championships and I even received a full athletic scholarship to the University of Oregon, where I met an enormously influential man by the name of Bill Bowerman. Instead of focusing immediately on the challenges, his brain immediately went to, how can we make this work? Yeah, because uh, he wrote me a note and he was on the board uh, of directors at Nike and I was now doing well at Nike. And he wrote me this really nice note and it just was um, a husband, father, architect, athlete, designer. The University of Oregon and you have fulfilled the purpose of going to school in the first place. It was something really profound. What was cool about the note was that it was just as important to him that I had become an architect and a, and a designer or I was a father and a, and a husband and a few other things in addition to being a track star or whatever. It spoke to his awareness that he was trying to create national champions and help people do their best in track and field, but he was he was just as interested in making sure that his athletes were good people and, and uh, were capable. You know, we see those of us around the University of Oregon Athletics, you know, there's an awareness of his name, there's an awareness of the impact on the track and field program and on Nike. But, you know, every year that passes, the portrait gets a little hazier. Yeah. What do, you, what do people need to understand? What was the essence of Bowerman so that he's not, you know, that, that, that makes that hazy picture just a little clearer for those yeah. of us who weren't around when he was still working? Yeah, I think, I think the best way to describe him was that uh, he was uh, a very sophisticated and innovative coach in an era when it was more militaristic. And that set him apart. Now, he could be tough on, on certain athletes because they needed it. And then he would hardly say boo to other athletes because they didn't need it. And he was really sophisticated that way. It wasn't, it wasn't him standing in front of the whole track team and saying it's my way or the highway. It was way more sophisticated than that. And there, were, there weren't very many coaches in football or track or basketball that were like that. So he was extremely advanced. And I think it was because, uh, you know, he recognized that in his own in his own life that, um, you know, he had to use a lot of different uh, <coughs> components of excellence to, to get where he was. And so he, he was a big fan of that. And people don't know that he actually helped found the Bach Festival in Eugene and that he was. I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> He was uh, involved in, um, you know, other causes outside of um, 
track and field, including, you know, starting the jogging, yeah. the jogging thing. So when I got hurt, you know, again, there was some talk about uh, pulling my scholarship because I was just damaged goods. It took two years of rehab before I could even run down the runway. It, and then he helped me with this, with making these special track spikes after I had rehabbed and I could start to run again. And then I, in a sense, uh, I think I was driven to want to please him and make him proud and also make it, justify his, his sticking his neck out to help me keep my scholarship by just competing as best I could. And that's when I started setting school records and beating people I shouldn't have been beating. And <laughs> it was pretty cool. But I still was never, I was never the athlete they were hoping for because of that injury. When I came here, he was designing Nike running shoes and track spikes. He was liable to do anything and try anything to make his athletes better. He used to have a little cobbler shop right underneath the grandstands. If you weren't careful, he might just pop out of that little cobbler shop and grab you by the scruff of the shirt and tell you to try on these shoes and run around the track. How much of a presence was kind of the experimentation with shoes? Was that a constant specter it mixed in with his coaching? Or yeah, for you yeah. guys, was it something that was just on the side every no, once in a while? No, no, he, okay. he, he had his cobbler shop right there underneath the old West grandstands. But that when I was a freshman, he his cobbler shop was in there and he was, he'd be, you, you everybody was actually kind of nervous running around the track because he could, that door could fly open and he'd come out of there with a new pair of shoes and he'd be looking for somebody to, <laughs> to wear test them. And everybody was like, oh, hope he doesn't pick me. But I. Because uh, some of them didn't work as intended. Uh, sometimes you'd get, uh, like, I remember having a pair that uh, just self destructed about, uh, I was asked to run a 400 meters in it, and I, they self destructed about 200 meters. And I, I went tumbling. And, uh, or you come back bleeding, or, or that's, uh, I remember the spikes would unscrew themselves because he had different weird spikes on them. But the thing, the, the thing that sort of connected us, maybe right, right off the bat, maybe it is one reason why he tried so hard to help me after I got hurt, was that um, I became his favorite test pilot because I could draw and I would not only give him a report, but I would draw up some suggestions. Then I, then he asked me, I started drawing, doing mold drawings for him because he, he needed to have uh, mold drawings uh, so he could take them to a, a mold maker, uh, somebody who would uh, cut metal. And then, then he would take that mold to Wyatt Tire Company. And Wyatt Tire Company, in, which is still there. So they were used to mixing rubbers and urethanes and stuff like that. So that he was that's, that's how he got his outsoles made. And I was doing the drawings, some of his drawings for his outsoles. What, what spurred you to do that? Because I mean, it- like you said, I mean, it doesn't sound like you were much of like a doodler growing no, up. No, it's just that once I got into architecture school, I'm like, oh, geez, I've got to draw. And, uh, and, and I just naturally could do it. It was, not, it was kind of a surprise. Then I remember getting a little bit of help from a professor named Michael Yutzi, who uh, saw that I had some talent and he showed me a few little tricks. But otherwise, I just started drawing and, yeah. I, and I was doing all kinds of stuff for Bill. And some and the best way some of the best ways for you to communicate your feedback to him was by drawing. Yeah, I felt I felt like well, you know, I could you know I could certainly write write a report, which I would do, but I could just draw up how a shoe 
was uh, had some faults, and yeah. I would draw up the fault, and I'd draw a track spike that would unscrew itself because it had too many points touching the, and it would just rotate itself out. And I drew I drew a picture of it rotating itself out, and and he's like, he he never seen drawings like that. So you, you, you graduate from U of O, you think you're going to become a career architect? Yeah, yeah, I thought, I thought so. <laughs> I was the corporate architect for Nike. I mean, I, I had been laid off in Eugene because of the economy. You know, we had a one-year-old daughter who needed surgery. I mean, I, I started scrambling around to try and make some money. As, and I, I found out that I, would, I passed all my exams. I was a licensed architect. And, and uh, so I've been going through all of that during that whole time. And, so it was um, kind of kind of crazy, but uh, a guy named Jeff Hollister, you probably know of his last name, yeah. He hired me to illustrate a marketing, a sports marketing pamphlet for Nike. So Nike basically could educate their pe- people uh, on how to do sports marketing, and so I illustrated it, and and, uh, and that uh, that got me cut my foot in the door at Nike, and ultimately, then they found out I was an architect. And so, in order to get me employed, I got hired as the corporate architect, and was doing you know showrooms and office improvements. We weren't doing any big campuses there at the time, but I remember doing the 1984 Olympics Westwood store. You know, so I was in and out of L.A. doing that. So that's that kind of got me noticed by some people up here. And ultimately, they, they hired me. And then uh, I started showing some additional creativity and got moved into the product design area, which was obviously a good move. <laughs> so, what, what, sure. what was Nike? Late 70s, early 80s. What what it what? Just right. It was a running company. It was dabbling in basketball and football. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of the emphasis was on the big road runs in Eugene or in, or in Portland here or, or wherever. And so uh, a lot of the a lot of the early designers, um, including Bill Bowerman and Jeff Johnson and uh, Mark Parker, our former CEO, was a, was one of those people, too, that. They were all runners, so the, so that's what the company was. It was all about running and uh, pretty niche. Yeah, pretty niche and uh, without a huge promise to get monstrous. Get, going back to Jeff Hollister and some of those guys, they actually figured out how to kind of crack the code with some of these world class athletes and figure out how to sign them. And they were more like family, and it was more less about the money and more about oh, I get to have my own shoe, you know, and all that stuff and that really helped Nike sort of break uh, break out of just being a running company. Because now we're like, you know, and then, and of course then the signing of Michael Jordan was right. everything. Working together with Oregon Community Credit Union to produce the Mighty Oregon podcast just feels natural because I've been an OCCU member for as long as I can recall. Whether I was building a savings plan or securing a car loan, Oregon Community Credit Union has always treated me not just like a customer, but a friend and neighbor. Learn more about OCCU and how they've been supporting Ducks for over 60 years 
at myoccu.org slash grow dash o. Nike was laying people off right and left. They were also thinking that they needed to upgrade their design group. So I was invited to be a part of a 24-hour design contest. A big step for you, if I understand correctly, is designing a shoe to be worn while riding a scooter? Yeah. So there was, there was a concern amongst the top brass in marketing and design that maybe we didn't have such great designers because Nike was losing out to Reebok. Some things are not going very well. Shoes or designs were, I think basically the early designers were more, uh, since they were mostly running oriented designers, you know, they, maybe they were having struggling with trying to do other things. And um, so they asked me to participate since I was designing all kinds of crazy stuff, stores and, you know, real inventive kind of architectural stuff. They said, why don't you join in this competition? We need to find out who's good and who's not around here. So there was a 24-hour competition. And they let us choose what we designed, but they gave us 24 hours. And they expect us to come in uh, uh, right on the dot and then present. So I stayed up all night and did this. And I'm like, I was riding a motor scooter to work. As a, I, didn't, I wasn't making it. Still not making much money. But I, I, uh, in order to buy our first house, we had to sell our car. And I was taking using, I had a motor scooter and I was riding out to Beaverton on a motor scooter. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to design a shoe that's for, that is a multi-purpose shoe that, uh, that also is kind of good for, for, uh, shifting and braking with a mo on a motor scooter, but you could, you could get, uh, when you got somewhere, you could, uh, go for a jog or a walk in the shoe. So it was kind of a multi-purpose cross shoe. training. Kind of a kind of, kind of. <laughs> anyway. So I did this big, huge presentation and drew the scooter and a foot and a person on it. And, and, uh, and I had all this, uh, had all this criteria checked off and, uh, the drawings were nice and, uh, and it was huge. I did, I did it as large as uh, it was, pro it was probably about, uh, 48 by 48, the oh, whole wow. presentation board. And it was, had to fold in half to get in the car and, there were some designers that weren't either that good or they just didn't take it that seriously. But uh, it was widely known that I outshone all the Nike designers at the time. So I got, I was, wasn't even asked. I was told I was going to be a shoe designer now because they needed it. And my, one of my very first shoes was the Air Max, yeah. which is the Soul Collector says is the best Nike shoe, best shoe Nike's ever done. And I did it. Uh, my developer was Mark Parker, who ultimately became our CEO, uh, president and CEO. Um, so we've been friends for a long time and we traveled all over the world trying to make, figure out how to make that shoe. And it's my design, but you know, when you're the developer, you get, you know, you have some creative input too. But, but the reality is um, that uh, that's how I got into this, the shoe game. And uh, so, you know, and soon after, soon after I was doing sneakers and I was getting these stupid briefs uh, for that were basically being written by the retailers and they're not, there's not, that's not really a good recipe for doing anything innovative, which was a part of Nike's problem at the time. They got really in bed with Foot Locker and, and maybe listening to Foot Locker too much. And the product was getting kind of boring. And, and again, it was mostly running based in, and because uh, you're not thinking of new things to do, you're responding to just responding to what they think that they can sell, right. you know, and 
that's just a, that's just a recipe for disaster, really. And so, uh, so I started uh, immediately uh, designing shoes that that I was thinking about. Not in, I wasn't briefed by, and t- still to this day, I don't work off. Of, I've not worked off of marketing briefs, much to the consternation of the marketing and uh, <laughs> uh, merchandising people. But you know, and it's kind of run its course. I think Nike's now a different animal, and so it's not easy for uh, for for that process to occur anymore. But it, it did for a long time, and it was great. And so, um, yeah, I helped innovate and change the world of sneakers, and and uh, I developed a kind of a way to work with these athletes, you know, um, uh, so that they trusted me and they didn't see me as part of of a corporate entity, but more as a as a friend and collaborator. So, um, so that was important too. And, you know, I think I learned some of that back in architecture when I was trying to present, you know, big projects to people. Storytelling. A lot of storytelling. Yeah. I'll often describe myself as, as a a storyteller before all else, because in the end, when I design something, there's a, there's a story behind every drawing or every design and every innovation. So, and is that, is that a, primary element of the trade of architecture that you're taught to have a yeah there's a lot there's a you really you really have to become kind of a sophisticated uh salesperson but but you don't ever want to come across as a salesperson so so you you um, you search for ways to connect with a connect with your your client through maybe a reason for being which is usually have, might have a story attached to it. This isn't just a building. This is a building with a... This is a building that uh, a narrative you know, that uh, embodies who you are and who you're, who's going to be in the building. And, and there's a, you know, it could be a church and there's a spirituality to it, or it could be a school or it could be a, a house, but it all, it all has to, it, it's easy to sell your designs if you can personalize it and uh, not only uh, tell a story, but, uh, but, the client sees themselves in the story, and uh, and I so I, I I am pretty sure I'm the first one in the shoe business to ever do that. Yeah, it seems so fundamental now. Super but it fundamental then. now, but it wasn't then. It was more about well, we just need to make a shoe that's a little lighter weight and, and uh, more comfortable, and uh, you know, and we're not going to worry too much about you know what it looks like. Uh, it's just like it just needs to work. And I was I came at it like no 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 no. You, you people need to not only uh, see us as a performance company that will help them achieve their goals as athletes at whatever level but also we want them to love the product and be attached connect to it, connected to it one of my very first projects was the air max i felt like this was an opportunity to think way differently i think about the air max and it made me think about the way you talked about your dad a little bit, having a shoe where you can see the air inside, yeah, you, you know, might not in hindsight might not seem like the most mind blowing concept at the time. It was something nobody was doing, right? And it was just putting a different twist on the way things were always done, which your your dad seemed comfortable with at the time. Yep, he was doing stuff like that, and 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 uh, they were changing rules, and he was <laughs> he was causing a little bit of of a ruckus and, and he was just naturally good at it. And I think I just, just inherited that. Let's just do That's things a little right. different and not yeah. conform yeah. to convention. Yeah. Because, you know, you can get crazy and you can do spaceships, you know, or, or really outlandish things. 
but if but people still need to be able to connect and uh, so there's a there's a there's this line you, you don't want to cross when you're trying to get people to like what you've done which means there needs to be a little familiarity but then what is the twist that makes it different and makes it personal and working with michael jordan was a lot of fun because um, i had a lot of inspiration and input from him that made made uh, that made for great storytelling and uh, an interesting design work. Tinker is a mad scientist. He came from a pole vault, and when I played the game, it was about jumping. So I mean, it was easy to try to find that synergy and a great complement between the two of us. What we did as a team was able to build a product that sustained time. Do you remember the first time you met him? Yeah, I uh, I met him uh, once I was told that I was going to be doing his third shoe with no time right. on the clock. Uh, yeah, that so, was a moment of, of great pressure for the com company. Right? Oh, yeah. It was, it was uh, Phil Knight thought it was over. Uh, and he, he, want, he, he was wanted to leave and all kinds of stuff. But I jumped on a plane with Howard White and we flew to um, Chicago and went to his. He just had a, an apartment, like a condo. I remember knocking on the door. And you could hear a rumble and a, it was like a fight going on in the basement of this condo. I remember like there was like this ruckus, this loud crashing and thumping. And we had to pound on the door a few times and then they heard us. And he was, it was, and we heard this voice, just come on in, the door's unlocked. Come on in, come on down, come down the stairs. So we did and went down there and we happened upon Michael playing Charles Oakley in table tennis. <laughs> but it was not normal table. This was like, I'm going to kill you. Ultimate fighting table out. tennis. I'm kind of, I mean, it was, it was trash talking and arguing over points. And they were serious about who was, and there was money on the table. I mean, it was crazy. And literally, these guys could barely stand up. It was the ceiling wasn't even hardly tall enough. Charles Oakley six ten, Michael six six, and they are flying around there. And I'm like, whoa! <laughs> it was a, it was a hoot. And then afterward, uh, we all went upstairs, and Charles Oakley was uh, is a very good cook, and he cooked us all lunch. It was really great. He, he, it was like a, a, a southern kind of like grits and catfish and and he just he went in and just did it and he loved cooking and so we all ate and chatted and that was, that was the first time I met Michael and uh and and he was kind of suspicious I think most people at that level um when they start getting kind of famous um they they, they get wary they get more wary what was the purpose of that meeting for the purpose of that meeting was for was to introduce me to him Got because it. I was now going to be designing his third shoe, Got and I had like one quarter the amount of normal time to do it. And so it turned out that was that was the beginning of the design process for the Jordan Three, right. which is like the second or third most important shoe they that they say uh, Nike's ever done. Our studies tell us that if you take better care of your feet and get better blood flow, a better fit and better comfort, you actually play better. Like how, how much, uh, 
the functional elements of a shoe, do you even need to worry about at that point? I mean, are you- uh, I would, uh, that, that's all I worried about. Okay, okay. So when I had my conversation with Michael as an example, you know, it was, uh, it was like, well, what wasn't so great about your last shoe? Yeah. And, you know, what, what do you think, what would you, what would you do to improve it yourself if you were like doing your own shoe? And Cause they're so, known for looking cool, but you're focusing now on just how can they. Every time it was always about performance and, okay. you know, we would talk about, well, well, let's, let's change the collar height. And, uh, I'm going to, I have an idea, Michael, on how we can make this shoe lighter, but not stretch out for you. And, uh, and then we, you know, we, the visible air and all, and all that stuff was just, and it was, it's kind of like this checklist. Like if you're an airline pilot, you better go down the checklist and you need to cover all your bases or something bad could happen. Well, that's how I thought about Michael Jordan. If I didn't do a great job and he's out there and he gets hurt in the shoe or he just doesn't, you know, it doesn't reach his full potential, it's on me. So I was going down that list. And, uh, but the cool thing was that he was already kind of developing a personality around uh, looking good and being classy and, and I went, uh, we went to his haberdasher, which was uh, called Bixby and Crothers in Chicago. And he was, uh, I saw how he was super into pick, picking some wools and tie colors and things. And he, you could just tell he was into it. And I'm like, well, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Um, I'm not only going to deliver him a, a be- the best basketball shoes ever worn, but it's going to be cooler than anything that he's ever worn. Did you have to ever have to study like the physiology of the foot? Uh, I just sort of learned from my own rehab. Okay. You know, I was watching the trainers and I was, th- you know, I had gone through a whole lot of, uh, and so when I had taken first aid, I was a lifeguard. There were all kinds of reasons why I knew a little bit about uh, anatomy and, and, and uh, first aid and fitness and things like that. And then as I started doing, doing this uh, a little more spe- specific design work around uh, sports performance and footwear, uh, I, I endeavored to learn even a little bit more, okay. you know, and I would go in and talk to the, the lab guys and stuff like that. But, uh, but it was, I already kind of had a good sense for it. And, uh, and you know, Bill Bowerman was always there to, uh, he, I would, <laughs> we'd be presenting new shoes to the board of directors and Bill Bowerman would be in there. He didn't care what the, any of the shoes looked like. He was like, how, what, what do they weigh? How, and he'd bring a little postal scale in there. He'd give me the shoe. No, but this is like the new Air Max. It's got the, and he's out. Give me the shoe. Yeah. So and then he put it on his little little uh, scale, which was he just nabbed it from the mail room or something and brought it to the meeting. <laughs> and he'd weigh the shoe and he'd go, well, near as I can tell, the shoe's a little heavier than last year's shoe. Yeah, it's true, but there's a whole lot more cushioning which we are trying to protect people from getting injured. And that's why there's a little bit more weight. And then, uh, then we, I got used to then also trying to figure out how to keep, how to do all that, but keep things lighter. And we were finding new materials and new foams and things like that. That was all part of, of, a, of a show trying to influence people. But I was also learning, learning about what was important to you have to know who's in the room. Right? Yeah. You have to understand 
what people in the room are going to react to, you know, what their priorities are. Yeah. And, and, you know, so with athletes, I would, I understood that. And it was really great that I was an athlete myself because then I could communicate on a level that made them more comfortable. Oh, this, this guy isn't just a designer. He actually is an athlete. Yeah. I used to go work out with Michael Jordan when he, when he was one of the very early basketball players to have a trainer and like seriously work out. I'd go work out with him in his house. Yeah. I could do handstands on the equipment and do all kinds of upside down stuff because of my background. And he's like, you know, you're making me look bad or something like that. And I'm like, ha you know, I laugh. But, you know, even though he was like semi annoyed, I think it impressed him also. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy is, is not just again just a designer so so though there are there are lots of ways for all, all of us to try and crack the code with people that that we want to get to know better and maybe do something good for this is the second of a three-part series looking into tinker hatfield's role in reshaping popular culture and how being an organ duck vaulted him into a world he never could have imagined. Next week on the Mighty Organ Podcast, presented by Organ Community Credit Union. What we were doing as a company and me as an individual, but but collectively was impacting the entire world, inside and outside of sports. Thanks for joining us on the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union, a production of Sport and Story and Learfield IMG College. You can support this podcast by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union. I'm Rob Mosley, your host. The Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union is produced by Andy Boggs. Episodes are mixed, engineered, and edited by James Youngblood. Our production assistants are Evan Eccleston and Emery Kincaid. Theme music for the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union is composed by Sweet 25. Our supervising producers are Bart Pullman and Kelly Shukart. The executive producer of Sport and Story is Bo Mattingly. Special thanks to Tinker Hatfield, NBC, and Netflix. Come back and join us next week for another episode of the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union.